Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man for you the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Uh, this is going to be episode 1119 of the Survival Podcast. It's Monday, so this is going to be um, a listener feedback show. Uh, the last one of April. That means that we're heading into May very, very soon. i got a lot of cool stuff for you today. I'm going to tell you right up front. You can probably already tell. You're going to have to deal with uh, my voice not being quite what it normally is today. Yesterday, if, if yesterday had been Monday, uh, I would have had to cancel the show. I, I barely spoke three words to my wife yesterday until about five in the afternoon. I simply couldn't talk. Uh, this is a combination of just being at an expo for two days and talking to so many people nonstop for that long. And uh, when I was presenting uh, in the noisy environment of the expo hall, uh, really projecting my voice uh, as, as best as I could, considering there were thousands of people milling around uh, the several hundred that were listening and trying to make sure that the people in the back row could hear me as, as best as possible in those circumstances. Uh, when you push your voice that hard, which is something I always do in an environment like that because I care about the people that come, sometimes you suffer a little bit for it. Uh, so uh, that's why you're hearing that today, and, and I'm sorry for it, but it can either do it with a little bit of a hoarse voice uh, or I could not do a show at all, and I didn't want to cancel today's show, especially given there wasn't a Friday show, and given I have so many cool things for you guys today to talk about, and cool things that are coming, and cool ideas to bounce off of you, and uh, help that I want. Now, I do have a announcement straight up front. Uh, my presentation from the expo is online in HD video. It's not me at the expo. It's a rough cut of the presentation that I did to get the timing right and, and to go through it. There's, there's typos and some parts of it where I just am pausing to make a note or whatever, but it is the entire presentation. Probably actually has more information than what was delivered at the expo. Uh, that's available freely online. I was going to make it just for the MSB members. Uh, I decided to go ahead and make it available to everybody for free. I'll talk to you more about that and some other ideas that I have and some stuff with Jeff Lawton coming up as well. Uh, and I've got a lot of other great feedback for you. We'll get to that in just a second. Let's take care of our uh, sponsors and our uh, feedback section, or not our feedback, our housekeeping section first. Uh, sponsor of the day number one today is Western Botanicals. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have to see what they have for uh, helping to improve the health of your voice box in your throat today. Um, I do try to go to herbal uh, supplemental uh, stuff before uh, I go on to uh, to use other things uh, like conventional medicine, even over-the-counter stuff. I'd much rather do something with an herbal if I can. And my go-to source for herbals is Western Botanicals. I recommend that you check them out as well. They're at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today is uh, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been a subscriber since I got out of the Army in 1993. I was pretty dead broke when I first came to Texas, and the first thing that happened, and I mean literally the first thing, was my car broke down. Uh, it actually broke down before I officially got here on the uh, 635 LBJ. I ended up pushing my car uphill onto an, uh, a shoulder, and uh, while people blew the horn at me as though I was going to break into a sprint while pushing a car. Uh, anyway, that was my welcome to Texas. My buddy came and towed the car home, and for a couple months, as I was looking for a job and living off what I had, which wasn't a lot, uh, I did occasionally walk up to a mall, and there was a Barnes & Noble bookstore there. And I'd buy a coffee, and I'd sit down, and I'd read what was ever available in one of those big soft chairs, and one of the things I started reading then was Backwoods Home Magazine. That's the true story. And uh, as soon as I got a job and got kind of established and on my feet, I became a subscriber. I've been one ever since. 
And today to be working with people like Dave Duffy and Jackie Clay, Masada Yub, uh, directly and having a sponsor relationship for them is just really awesome. There's a reason I've been a follower of what they're doing for so long. Uh, they're one of the best publications you can find on self-sufficiency, uh, and self-reliance out there with real things that actually work in every episode and done with a libertarian flair. Check them out today at BackwoodsHome.com. Next up, May, man, check out Walking to Freedom. I got a great story for you about a senator voting with his feet later today. Uh, WalkingToFreedom.com is a new forum that we've set up a couple months ago, actually about a month and a half ago, which means the voting's almost over, folks. Get on over there, register, and vote uh, to help people that are living in the, the worst states in the union, which we determine through disapproval voting of the members, Find new places to live, make connections, and, and pick the state that's best for them and vote with their feet. More on that later today. TSP Mint, we're doing really well there. I think we got through the problems that we had. We have a lot of the Second Amendment coins available for you guys. They're shipping pretty quick. Uh, I do have something special coming later this week, and I'm going down to the Mint to make sure the quality control issues are uh, taking care of the way that I expect them to be done later this week, and I'll be reporting back to you on that. But you can go ahead and order uh, Ant Coins and Second Amendment Coins, and uh, you know that they're going to be shipped pretty quick for you. I think we're over most of the uh, the growing pains that the Mint went through. And uh, now is a good time to buy silver. There's been some questions about our pricing. Did it go up? It didn't really go up. Here's what happened with our pricing at the Mint. Uh, we are still doing the low pricing, the, you know, $299 over spot for, uh, for non-members and $199 over spot for MSB members, but only on orders of five or more coins. On one-off orders, one, two, three, four coins, anything lower than, than five, uh, we're pricing them just a couple dollars higher because it's impossible for us to ship orders with two coins at, you know, a, a two dollars over spot and make money. The other thing is sometimes you look at it and go, well, the spot's not with, we price it over spot based on the open for the day. So if it changes during the day, our price doesn't change unless it was a major shift in silver. And if that would happen and it would be, a, you know, to, uh, to your advantage because it dropped, I would just say wait till the next day and order on open if you think that's, that's a big deal. But usually we're talking about, you know, 10, 20 cents in swing and that's usually not enough to affect the reason that you're buying silver for in the first place. We do our best to be as close to live pricing as we can, but that's where we're at with it right now. All right, folks, with that, I want to go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. And I want to start out with today uh, that my presentation is online. It's in full HD video, except it's not me. It's just PowerPoint. I put it on both YouTube and Vimeo, and I don't know, some people prefer one over the other. Um, I guess the big thing about Vimeo is it's really easy for you to actually download the presentation in, in its original form from Vimeo. Uh, and I have the uh, upgraded package there so I can do that in HD and I can put up a lot of content for you guys in HD. And uh, if you want to take the content, as long as you, if you put it somewhere, please don't alter it get, and give me credit. Uh, but if you want it for your own use, man, go download it. So I'll have links to both versions of it. Same video, two different locations in today's show notes. I, I would like some feedback on it and, and in two ways. First of all, those of you that were at the event, I've been trying to make a case to Ron um, Ron Douglas, who runs the event, that it's, it would really be a good idea for them to pick up a couple breakout rooms and have the presentations done um, in the breakout rooms versus on the floor. And this was a two-hour presentation. I put tons and tons of work and photography and images. I went out and I got images from Paul Wheaton. I got permission to use uh, images from Alan Savory. Uh, I got images from Jeff Lawton and his team. I did a lot of my own photography, and I put a ton of work into it. And I just feel like a lot of you guys didn't get to really hear it well enough or see it well enough uh, because of the environment. Um, I love what Ron and Scott are doing, or I wouldn't be working with them. 
but I do think that this is a change that would be beneficial uh, and would give attendees more value. So this is what I'd like. Only if you were there, I'd like you to send me an email, and I would like you to put expo feedback in the subject line, and I would like you to tell me two things on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being perfect and 1 being I couldn't see them at all. Tell me how well you could see the images that I was displaying for you in my presentation from 1 to 10, and be honest. Don't wait it one way or the other. If you saw them, great, put a 10. Um, and then I want you to put, the next thing is, on a scale of 1 to 10, how well could you hear me while I was speaking, 1 to 10, and then please tell me where you were in the audience. I was in the front, center, middle, standing at the side. Just send me those. I'd like as much feedback as I can from people that were there, um, and I'd like to send that on to Ron and just say, look, I mean, I'm trying, because I'm not, I'm not arguing with them or anything. I'm trying to help them. And I think that people come to these events, and I don't think it's just me. I think it's the other speakers as well. And I, and I honestly think most speakers don't have the voice projection that I do. Uh, and, and you can tell by hearing me today, two days later, how much I put into it, how much I drove the voice. And if you can't hear me, I'm thinking it might be difficult to hear others. And I'd like to simply help them understand that it would be in their best interest to deliver more value uh, by adding the moderate cost usually of having a room or two, or at least maybe a more sequestered area where we can lower the lights a little bit and block out the surrounding sound. Anyway, um, but the video's available, and those of you that maybe didn't get all the images well uh, received and maybe couldn't hear some of what I was saying can now watch that video over and over again. The second piece of feedback. The video uh, runs an hour and 55 minutes. There's definitely things that are not fully explained because my intent with that six-technique presentation is to expand it into something in the nature of a six- to eight-hour workshop seminar, something that could be done in a hotel uh, with other speakers where I take a day, they take a day, or maybe I break mine up into one-hour blocks, they break theirs up into one-hour blocks, but to turn it into six to eight hours of content. And I would like to know what specifically you would like to see added to it, uh, and uh, not just information. If there's pictures, images, diagrams, graphics, anything and everything you'd like to see added to it, and I'd also like to know: Is there anything that you just think doesn't need to be there? Like you didn't, I, like it did nothing for you, right? Like just take that out, get rid of it. That makes room for more important things and, and things that you would like to understand better, and how I can make it more directly applicable to you guys here in the United States of America with an understanding. I can't tell you what to plant Alaska and Florida in the same presentation. I have to stick to techniques, but I can try to tailor it more because a lot of permaculture people seem to feel like is, is due to the tropics and subtropics and things because, well, the greatest guy in the world at, at doing it is, is located there. So when he starts naming plants off, a lot of them are endemic to that area. But a lot of the challenges they have there we don't have here. It's actually easier here. I'm trying to explain that to you guys, and it's, sometimes it's difficult because we get locked into a belief system or a prejudice uh, that, that, that you know, the grass is always greener, and it, it's not the case. that They lose nutrients so much faster in the tropics than we do. A lot of the extraordinary measures they take with the volume of planting, we can scale back to half or even a quarter. Uh, even when Jeff emailed me about the coming workshop that is going to happen on my house with Jeff, um, I, uh, he, you know, his recommendations for support species were basically nine support trees to every primary tree, which is way, way less uh, than he would recommend for the tropics. So that shows you right there that we do have an easier job here 
due to the deciduous nature of things in, in this country and how much of that is there is compared to the tropics, subtropics, Mediterranean climate. Um, next thing, though. I've had people asking when, 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 can we come, you know, is it going to happen? And I've got this big list of people that want to come to the Earthworks Workshop. This is what I'm thinking at this point. I'd like your feedback by email on this as well, uh, on whether you would want to attend one or, and basically I know most of the people who want to attend one have already, you know, filled this list heavily, but maybe the second one. So here's my thought. What I talked to Jeff about was arranging a PDC, a permaculture design course, uh, with somebody else that had a bigger piece of land. And then I thought, well, maybe I would do it just in a hotel uh, and use a, you know, like a Marriott or something with a good event coordinator because and, 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 most of a PDC is classroom instruction. And then people could come and tour the design that was just done so I could set it up back-to-back -back for him. That makes his job of coming here easier. He can justify it with things. But there's something else coming. It's called Voices of Permaculture. I'm going to be part of it. I'm going to be speaking in California. I think it's March. I'll have to look it up to be sure. And Jeff is at least on the docket to be speaking there as well. So that's a trip to the States, March 2014. Uh, Jeff has some time available in December to do this workshop on my property. The problem is it's very difficult for me to get trees and plantings in December. That's not a great time to do the planting portion. March, late March especially, would be better. It's a great climate. Uh, great, great time of year for our climate. Everybody would be comfortable. And then I have this vision that came to me yesterday that I'd like to share with you guys about the future of permaculture in this country. I believe the future, and this is after watching, last night I went ahead and watched Jeff's Urban Permaculture DVD, uh, and some parts of that were part of the video that he was just released, and I'll talk about that in a second. Let me, let me switch to that. Jeff just released a new video. And it's permaculture in the microspaces. And there's some amazing things on there. And if you haven't seen it yet, you want to get over and see that video. And I want to clear something up for Jeff because there's a natural suspicion when somebody wants your email address online today. Um, Jeff is not going to sell your freaking email address. And the next person that emails me some stupid crap like that, I'm just going to delete. I'm not even going to respond to any more accusations of something like that. There is one thing that's been concerning people, and that's you opted in. You get an email, the new videos there. You get over to there to see it, and you can't see it. And you can't get in, and people are creating a second account or whatever just to get in. And you don't have to. Let me explain what's going on. What they do is, once you, they, obviously, they want your email address because they want to stay in touch with you. And they want to let you know, and I'm going to tell you flat out, and I'll even tell you sort of kind of what it's going to be today because they do in the video. They're going to make an offer to people that want to buy something, you know, in addition to all these free things. It's Basic marketing 101 on the internet. If you're doing anything but that, you're an idiot and you don't know how to make, you don't know how to market your product. But they do not require you to opt in over and over and over again. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're putting a cookie in your browser that's supposed to recognize you when you come back. Many times that cookie will expire or people clear their cookies so you come back and the, the page doesn't recognize you. On the website, there is a thing that says if you've already, if you're already joined, don't enter your name. Just stick your email in the email field, hit enter. And they'll put you straight back in. It doesn't re-opt you in. It doesn't double up your emails. All it does is go, oh, that's this person. We rec They're in the system. Here you go. I've asked Joel Bruce, who's uh, Jeff's web guy, to please put something up on the top of the page. It's much more, because it's like in the middle, and it's small print. And I was actually mad myself. I'm like, why the heck can't I see my videos? I'm in this system like three times with three different emails at this point. So I understand the frustration there. And uh, then I'm like, I'm like, this is, and I see it right in front of me. I'm like, it's been there the whole time. 
but it's not real evident. So I've been in contact with Joel this morning, and please put something up on the top of the page that says existing members log in here with your email address uh, and make that evident. And also to email not just you guys, but everybody that's part of Jeff's community and say, hey, I want you to know that this is how this works. So that's what's going on there. But this new video came out from Jeff on permaculture in the microspaces. And one of the gardens they show uh, is just amazing, the production. And it's 640 square feet. And it's it's just unbelievable, the production coming out of it. And I've always thought the future for permaculture as a business is in, um, I wouldn't call it urban, but I would call it the micro spaces, the small spaces. And I'd actually like to talk to Jeff. And I don't know, he might tell me I'm crazy and he doesn't want anything to do with this. But if there's a bunch of people waiting to go to a workshop for it, maybe he would. So instead of a PDC, which is two weeks long, And Jeff's already here for a conference in my workshop in another two weeks. And, you know, I know the guy wants to actually spend some time on his own farm. What if we did this? What if I talked to him about putting together a week-long course, a five-day course, maybe a six-day course, whatever he thinks is necessary, on permaculture in small spaces? And, and listen to the full vision of what I have here and realize that, like, I have this this sense for when things are going to happen. When I tell you what's going on with an Illinois senator and walking with and voting with your feet in a bit, I think you'll see the correlation to, to how I kind of pick up on this stuff. The idea would be, yeah, you could come to this course. You could learn everything you want, go home, design your backyard, walk on with life and, and never, never worry about it again, other than for yourself or maybe giving your neighbor some advice. But the course would be so intense and so specific to properties of, let's say, a tenth to one acre. That's what it's, that's sweet spot. Because that's the average homeowner is what they have in America today is a tenth of an acre up to about an acre. And even a lot of people with a two-acre property or whatever, they're only going to really work hard and manage about a quarter to an acre, right? A quarter of an acre up to an acre. So that's that, that's that zone one, that even in a big design, that zone one is done the same, whether it's a hundred percent kind of zone one in a small lot or a zone one on a bigger property. It's kind of the same thing. And yes, if you take a PDC, you'll know what you need to know to be able to design that. But there's a lot of specific things in there. Small scale swales, garden ponds, close plantings, Low pruning of fruit trees. I mean, there's just this, this incredible amount of work that's been done in the permaculture community that Jeff could be a catalyst to consolidate into a course that would be designed so that a person that took this course could literally go into business doing this. That's my thought. That, that, that we take permaculture, because my, my, and this just wraps all together, like things come together when it's right. My presentation at Voices of Permaculture is going to be on marketing permaculture to the masses, to taking it out of just kind of the eco-hippie world and, and selling it to people who don't really care about all of the things inside of it. They just look at a backyard like the one in just video and go, well, I'd pay for that. So that a person that went through this course could then literally go into a consulting mode almost at once because it's not that complicated. And, of course, you would get better at it over time, and it's a competitive market, and other people would be doing it too. But you could go in with different, pro, um, uh, promo, not promotions, but sort of offerings. One would be, I'll come in, I'll design it, I'll give you the design, I'll walk away. You get your own material, you do your own work, and I'll just you just pay me to design it. And that's something that in the average backyard, once you know what you're doing, with a little bit of investment in equipment and maybe some software, which is something I really am interested in, is finding a good 
either a landscape design software that already exists that could be used for this, and if anybody knows anything, or maybe even building a product eventually that's specific to permaculture, um, and, and just deliver that in a day. And maybe charge 500 bucks for that. The other option would be, we'll install it for you. And here's the beauty. If you have a good consultant that makes the design, you can literally use any landscaping company in, in the area as your labor to do the work as, and have them be as a subcontractor. Because it's just, it's digging and planning and moving, you know, and it could be anything from a very simple design, a single garden, to the whole thing, okay? And then a third option, which is a little bit more tricky and maybe it's not something we lead off with, but it's where the vision would go. You put in enough of these, these systems are so hyper-productive, they usually produce more than the family could use. It's quite possible that you could even have a maintenance contract that includes things like we come in, you know, once a week, and do the basic maintenance for you so you don't have to, because you know what? Some people will pay for that. And once the production starts, we leave you the production you want and literally buy from you the production you don't want and deduct that from your charges. And a system like that, a person that went into that line of work and did that for a couple of years, especially in a city of the size of Dallas or Houston or Austin or Atlanta, Jacksonville, Florida, you know, Los Angeles, California, and had 30 or 40 really top-tier clients that would pay for that level of service, and you could get them, would have enough food and enough production to be supplying farmers markets and local foods and local eateries and things like that. So it could be, and maybe there's even just a, just they just people that just want maintenance. Right, because what you want in a business model, you want a high, you want something so it's expensive, initial consultation and design, development, implementation. But you want steady cash flow, and that comes from a maintenance contract. So if you're in the air conditioner business, you sell systems and install systems. But if you didn't have maintenance and ongoing service work, you probably wouldn't be able to feed your people in between. I think this is a business waiting to happen, and I think this is how we spearhead it. And I think that it's easier to do this with homeowners who you could go into and say this whole thing could be implemented for $10,000 and we even have maybe we can even set up a way that people that want it can get financing. I know I'm opposed to debt, but that's how some people buy things. And if that's how people want to buy it, let them buy it that way. Um and I think that if you're going to invest in something, this would be something to invest in. So it's just an idea, but whether you think the business model's hot or not, I want to know from those of you who would like to come Then there's no way I'm going to be able to take more than 20 or 25 people at the Earthworks seminar. There's already like 80 people that want to come. Would you be interested if in, 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 instead of that, in coming to Dallas, doing a five to six day seminar, it would be at like a Marriott hotel. You could either stay at the hotel we booked it at, or you could get your own accommodations. Going through a course that's specific to 10th to one acre properties with everything Jeff can pour into that and doing so in the spring of 2014. Would you be interested in that, and would you be willing to pay? I mean, you're probably looking at a seminar that's somewhere in the neighborhood of about a 1000 bucks. And if you'd be interested in that, I'd very much like to know that. You can email me and let me know that. And if you're not interested and you think it's a dumb idea, you can tell me that too. Because um, I want to know. I want to know if I'm on to something here or not. And I'm sorry I used up a ton of the show today throwing all this stuff at you. Um, and I know some of you don't really, you know, care about the permaculture stuff. And I, I understand that. But I think that sustainable food production is a big deal. And I think that there's more people looking to buy locally produced food than there's locally produced food to buy in most cities in America today. 
And I think that there's a tremendous amount of unused land. And even where there's places where you can't do this in people's front yard, in most places in America, that backyard is wide open for business. And I think we can look at things like contour paths, garden ponds, how we integrate basic features that people want to re retain, like swimming pools and decks and things like that, so that you don't have to have a special deck or a special swimming pool if you don't want one. Right. And if you want your big screen TV outside and you want a shade reduction thing on it, so we maybe we can figure out how to plant some stuff there that helps with that so you can watch. But we're not going to tell people that you can't have your SUV. We're just going to put the systems into place and let them work. That's my thought. And this would just be like a, a pioneering group that would start trying to see if there's anything to this. And the nice thing is it would be something that would be very easy to do on a part-time basis, at least initially until you got it up off the ground. And I know some of you would want to come to this course and want nothing to do with the business side of it. That's fine, too. If you're doing it in your yard, then you're a case subject. Because what I, what I envision eventually is a single website where people can find consultants and see thousands and thousands and thousands of projects of backyards and small space permaculture and what it looks like and then say to a designer, this is the kind of stuff I want, and let that designer say, well, let me locally adapt that to you based on your climate, your rainfall, etc. I think it would be incredible. I think it's an opportunity to turn millions and millions and millions of acres of lawn into some of the most productive systems ever envisioned by man. And I do think the service side has in, uh, definitely something that could be done because there are people that pay somebody to spray their lawn every week. Well, that means many of those same people, if they knew there was an alternative, might pay somebody to come in and maintain a beautiful backyard garden that's a forest garden. And there's people out there with a little bit of money that you can serve in one level, and there's people out there with a ton of money that can be served at another level. It's a proven business concept. It's just this product's never been packaged before. And that's actually what I want to do. I want to package small-scale permaculture in such a way that it appeals to the person that goes, I don't care about permaculture, but I want that. That's what I want my backyard to look like. And I want to say, well, here's someone in Chicago that can make your backyard like that. That's my thoughts. Anyway, uh, going on to the next thing. Um, you know, I've, I'm a paleo guy, and I, I like to eat meat and vegetables and a little bit of fruit and pretty much nothing else. And uh, one thing I do miss is bread. But I just heard of a, a product you can buy, and I might buy a loaf or two and try it, but I might try making my own because the ingredients list is pretty sparse uh, the, of a bread that's uh, pretty daggone paleo. Anyway, there's a website. It's called paleobread.com, and um, they have two breads listed on there, and one is paleo almond bread, and the other one is paleo uh, coconut bread. And let me give you the, the kind of the lowdown on, on it. Uh, size for a loaf, 16 slices of loaf. One slice has about 60 calories. 30s are, 30 are from fat. That's, that's highly paleo. That's the almond bread, by the way. Um, it, it's a, uh, also got, let's see, carbohydrates, only 6 grams. Uh, there's 5 grams of fiber, dietary fiber. So of those 6 grams of fiber or, or carbohydrate, only 1 gram is actually going to have any effect on blood sugar. And then there's, so there's 1 gram of sugar, which makes sense, 17 grams of protein. Uh, the ingredients, water, almond flour, coconut flour, egg whites, psyllium, uh, organic apple cider vinegar, and baking soda. And that is the almond one. So even the almond one has some coconut flour in it. Coconut, 35 calories per serving, 10 are from fat. So this is a lower caloric version if, you, if you're worried about that at all. 
Um, and it has got six grams of carbohydrate, five grams of fiber, so we're back to one gram of actual sugar. That's insignificant. Um, and ingredients in that are purified water, organic coconut flour, egg whites, psyllium, organic apple cider, vinegar, and baking soda. So it might be something worth trying yourself. I'm going to buy one of each and just try it. I am not endorsing the product. I am endorsing the concept. Uh, I've not eaten it yet. It might taste like crap. It might be really good. Uh, I'll buy a couple loaves to then let you guys know, but I did want to kind of point out that it's available. That lets me segue right into the next thing I want to talk about today. I met a listener named Lindy at the show. She was very excited to meet me, one of the most excited people and happy people I've ever met in my life. And she has a good reason to be happy. Uh, she quit her job a while ago, uh, largely inspired by the Survival Podcast and the work that we're doing, and has gone and created something called Unhinged Homestead, a little blog she's got, and I'll link to that today. But that's not really her business. That's just her blog. Uh, she does need to tell people on her blog that they can buy stuff from her and that they can get at the Arlington Farmer's Market in downtown Arlington, Texas, because she's got some really unique stuff. Anyway, so one of the things she gave me was some tortillas that have amaranth in them, not amaranth grain. She grows the amaranth as a vegetable, dehydrates it, and mixes it into the tortilla flour, and these organic flour tortillas. And if I'm going to eat anything like a bread, I usually eat a tortilla uh, because... It's a, it's a much smaller thing. It's not a big giant slice of bread. So it's it's even though it's wheat, it's a lot less wheat than when you make a big sandwich. So you know, I'm like, I'll try these things. So she uh, she made these things and she packages them, sells them down at her market, and she gave me a jar of this uh, chili beer salsa. It's kind of spicy, but I like that. And Marjorie Wildcraft and a bunch of other people came over to my house on Saturday, and Marjorie made like 400 pounds of guacamole. So I woke up on Sunday, and I uh, heated up one of her tortillas, put a big old lump of guacamole in it, and a piece of bacon, and some of that ch uh, that chili beer salsa, and it was awesome. She also gave me some uh, peppered chicken jerky, and uh, that's the only thing. She gave me some other things. That's the only things I've tried so far. But let me tell you why this person is successful. One, she's excited as hell and believes in what she's doing. But two, she's doing unique things. Um, I've never seen an amaranth tortilla anywhere else before. And I can't just go get one anywhere else before. So uh, probably this coming weekend, I'm going to take my ass over to Arlington and buy some stuff from her. One, because she's really nice and she was very excited to meet me. And I want to support people uh, when they're when they're you know stepping out on their own. She's paying her bills though. She's she's survived with this business now for I think almost two years, and and that's just awesome. But it's the uniqueness. So where am I going to get chili beer salsa? Chili beer salsa from? I, I've never seen it before. Uh, the, the, the peppered chicken jerky was awesome. So these are unique products. And I think that, you know, Lindy, if you're listening, and from the way you talked, I think you probably are, I think you should start reaching out to small uh, little mom-and-pop stores about stocking some of your stuff and expanding your distribution. Or maybe start talking to some, find some really good family-owned restaurants that do the Tex-Mex thing and, and talk to them about supplying them with the salsa because you can supply them with that by the case. And if you can build up four or five avenues of distribution, you're on the, 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 the cusp here of making a really strong local brand uh, of something that you started you know, with a backyard homestead and, and a kitchen. And that's awesome. And I think that that's an example of what I'm talking about. Now, for us to have the ability to start really buying locally grown or at least locally produced food, because I'm sure that Lindy's not growing uh, wheat in her backyard enough quantity to make those tortillas, 
Um, so she's buying them, but they're still being produced here locally. We need hundreds of Lindy's. And if we want hundreds of Lindy's, then we need hundreds of places for them to source their food locally. And we need the kind of thing that I talked about with small-scale permaculture on steroids. Just a thought. And I think there's a huge opportunity to change that dynamic space. And let me tell you why it'll work. People want it. Um, Sunday evening, after we had gone to my father-in-law's and I had fixed some stuff over at his house for him, we stopped at a place called Central Market, which is kind of like, uh, sort of like a Whole Foods. Uh, but I actually like it better. And it was Sunday at 6 o'clock in the evening. And the place was jammed. We, we bought a few things. And I'm like, we got to get out of here. I can't take it. I mean, after the expo and so many people, and I, I just can't be in a place with as many people anymore, honey. we got to get out of here. But if it was jammed at 6 o'clock on a Sunday, there's a demand for higher quality, healthy, organically grown, naturally grown food. And this person, Lindy, here, she's taking initiative and capitalizing on it. And there's so much room for more. There's such a demand for this. I think that I'm very impressed with what's going on. And if you guys um, want to try some cool stuff and you live in the local area, get on over to the Arlington Farmer's Market. They're open Friday and Saturday only. And uh, check out Lindy's stand. Again, it's Unhinged Homestead. And I'll put a link to her uh, blog today. And, Lindy, thanks for all the great stuff. And I, I think you should feel very encouraged and continue to, uh, to build that brand. I think you've got something really cool going on. Now, what made me think of the paleo bread in this? So I, I mean this tortilla, and I'm thinking, you know, this, this this dried amaranth crumbled into a bread mixture is awesome, and it really boosts protein. It's a, Even without the grain, amaranth is very, very high in protein uh, and very rich in a lot of minerals and nutrients as well. It's it's really a wonder food, both as a grain as, and as a vegetable. So I was thinking, boy, if you could come up with some sort of a mix for a bread that wasn't really regular bread and add something like this and maybe even some other things, like I don't know, um, how about, um, lamb's quarter seed, which is a great high protein seed and put that into a bread. So my thoughts now are maybe this almond bread, coconut bread thing with some, you know, amaranth added and, and things like that might be really, really cool. Just a thought. Maybe, maybe Lindy might even give it a shot. Who knows? Anyway, so I just think it's cool that we have a listener that's actually out there and making this happen. Uh, moving on to the next subject, I had somebody email me about, well, I guess you would call it banking on seed. So anyway, here's the email I got, and it's from Glenn in Kentucky. Glenn says, uh, what if a financial institution issued certificates at least partly based off of seed reserves? What if a local seed bank had turned itself into a local mint? Do you think it would work? Obviously, seeds don't last forever, and I think the real down, that's a real downfall. But they last a long time and are extremely value-dense. Love the show, Glenn. Um, well, we kind of have something like that right now. It would be something like corn futures. Basically, that's what you're banking on is seed. Um, but, you know, this isn't actually something unprecedented. This has actually been done in the past. There were banking systems run on grain. And a person would be, and there were entire societies where pay was in grain. And a person would keep... Uh, their grain at a, a grain storage facility because you can only so, store so much in your house and it was a liability too because it could go bad. And what would happen is the, the person that ran basically for lack of a better term, the grain bank would issue them a certificate or a, a piece of paper that said you have X amount. And it even had the ability to like, so it would be like, let's say you could give away a share by simply removing part of the slip and using it as payment to somebody else who would take it whether they needed grain or not because somebody else would take it for whatever they needed. It was a form of currency at one time, 
And it was Scripps backing grains. It was seed, though. I mean, grains and seeds are the same thing. But this was generally done with things like barley, wheat, and spelt. It was supposed to be done in the, the Middle Eastern regions. This, this was something that happened. Would it work today? I don't know. I, I don't really think so. I think that there is certainly some level of barter network that could be set up using seed as a currency. Um, the fact that it expires is not real, or, you know, loses its germination rate over time and is no longer as, as uh, viable as it was in the past isn't really that big of a concern if it's well run. Uh, and the reason would be that um, it, what you would do is this bank would hold a specific amount of seed in reserve and it would then have a duty to basically sell seed to market and use the funding to buy new reserve seed on a rotational basis so what it was holding would always be fresh viable seed from a known supplier. I don't know that there's a lot of utility in it. Again, I think that the only way it might be really valid is done on a small scale and done really for barter networks. And I, I think that may be, it, it may even be somewhat of an outdated met, uh, mode. Um, I, I don't know. But it's it has happened before. It, it's not like there's no precedent for it ever. Uh, again, there were certain civilizations where people were paid in grain and paid in beer, by the way. That was another thing that people were paid in. Uh, but the beer you usually would take home with you and you would get a ration daily or something for certain jobs and positions. Um, if you actually want to get a really creative way uh, to learn about things like this and different things that happen through history, there's a series of, of novels by uh, a guy named Piers Anthony. And I don't know all the books that are in the series, but the one I remember reading a long, long time ago was called Isle of Women. And it starts out at the dawn of civilization, and it's basically the same characters are reincarnated over and over again at different times in history and have different challenges that they face. And Anthony weaves a tremendous amount of the history you never learn into these books and tricks you into learning it because it's all based on a, a drama, novel, little bit of sci-fi kind of, kind of, it's not sci-fi because it's, except for the very end. Usually there's a flash forward into the future for a final chapter in these books, but uh, most of it's historical. And when I say sci-fi, it almost has that feel of a sci-fi novel. Um, and I, I'm not saying that this, everything this guy wrote you should uh, you should run out and buy because I read one of his other books that was like a fantasy goddess thing. I don't know, and it was uh, I never finished it. It was uh, I just gave it a shot because you know I liked the guy's other books, but the the series that Isle of Women is part of, and it's pretty old. I don't know if the guy's around anymore. I remember reading this because a friend gave me the book back around 1990, I think would have been about the time. So, uh, But it's an interesting thing, and it's one of the things you'll pick up. I think It's either that one or one of the other ones is the way that people were paid in certain things, and you learn a lot about the evolution of language uh, as well. So it might be worth checking out. So next up, um, you know, I put together walkingtofreedom.com, and uh, I said I think it's a, a concept whose time has come that this was something already going on, not something I was trying to make happen. I just wanted to create a place where people could use it for the dynamic that's already at play. And as I said, I think I kind of have uh, a, a feel for things like this. I kind of know uh, when we're on the cusp of something, and that's what I, you know, brought up about the, you know, kind of the small spaces permaculture thing. I got to come up with a name for that that's marketable. Uh, beyond the, the, the usual suspects anyway, but I'll, I'll work on that. 
But on this one, um, voting with your feet, going to a better place, you know, and not in the way you say it when somebody's uh, passed away, but actually like still being here and going to a better place. Um, a senator has done this, a former state senator from the, uh, the one state that we know will definitely make the naughty list, Illinois. So let me read this to you. A listener sent this to me. Let me see who it is so I give credit to him. Um, doesn't give his name. Oh, Stan. Stan at the bottom there. Okay, so Stan sent me the following. Keats vote with their feet and wallets and leave for Texas. Former state senator and Republican Cook County board president candidate Roger Keats and his wife, Tina, are leaving Illinois to live in Texas. They bid farewell to their Illinois friends in a Willamette Beacon article and with this letter this weekend saying they're voting with their feet and their wallets. Goodbye and good luck. As we leave Illinois for good, I want to say goodbye to my friends and wish all of you well. I'm a lifelong son of the heartland and proud of it. After 60 years, I leave Illinois with a heavy heart. But enough is enough. The leaders of Illinois refuse to see we can't continue going in the direction we are and expect people who have options to stay here. I remember when Illinois had 25 congressmen. In 2012, we will have 18. Compared to the rest of the country, we have lost one quarter of our population. Don't blame the weather because I love Four Seasons. I want you to think about that. Illinois used to have 25 congressmen. Now they have 18. I said this about a week ago. People emailed me and told me I was wrong. I said part of the big swing of the House of Representatives to the Republicans was less about people being pissed off at Obama and more about population flow and states losing and gaining seats. Here it is from a man that actually had one of the, the well, didn't have one of those seats, but served as a as a state senator in the state of Illinois, telling you that's exactly what happened, and that's why I'm telling you that the the house is way into the hands of the Republicans still, but yet Obama got reelected. There's something to that. People left, and states that are more liberal that have huge population density cities don't have quite the clout they did anyway because of losing people. That's the point of walking to freedom. Back to the article. Illinois just sold still more bonds, and our credit rating is so bad we pay higher interest rates than junk bonds. Junk bonds. Illinois is ranked 50th for fiscal policy, 47th in job creation, first in unfunded pension liabilities, second largest budget deficit, first in failing schools, first in bonded indebtedness, highest sales tax in the nation, most judges indicted, operations gray lord and gambit, and five of our last elected governors have been indicted. Really? I didn't know that. Five of their last nine governors have been indicted? That is more than the other 49 states added together. Then add 32 Chicago aldermen, and according to the Chicago Tribune, over 1,000 state municipal employees were indicted. The corruption tax is a real cost of doing business. We are the butt of jokes for stand-up comics. We live in the most corrupt big city, in the most big, in the in the most corrupt big county, in the most corrupt state in America. I am sick and tired of subsidizing crooks. A day rarely passes without an article about the corruption and incompetence. Chicago even got caught rigging the tests to hire police and fire. Our Cook County corporate property tax system is intentionally corrupt. The Democratic state chairman, who is also the Speaker of the Illinois House, and the most senior aldermen in Chicago each make well over a million dollars a year, putting the fix in for clients' tax assessments. We are moving to Texas where there is no income tax, while Illinois just went up 67%. Texas, Texas sales tax is half of ours, which is the highest in the nation. 
Southern states are supportive of job producers, taxpayers, and folks who offer opportunities to their residents. Illinois shakes them down for every penny that can be extorted from them. The hill country of Texas near Austin and San Antonio, we bought a gracious home on almost two acres with a swimming pool. It's new and will cost us around 40% of what our home in Winnet just sold for, and the property taxes are one-third of what they are here. Cook County's property tax system is a disaster. Willamette Homes near ours sell for 50% more than their property taxes are one-half of ours. The assessed home values were 50% higher than the sales price. The system is unfair and incompetent. Our home is our home value is down 40%. Our property taxes are up 20%. And our local schools have still another referendum on the ballot to increase taxes over 20% in one year. I could go on, but enough is enough. I feel as if we are standing on the deck of the Titanic and I can see the iceberg right in front of us. I will miss our friends a great deal. I have called Illinois home for essentially my entire life. But it is time to go where there is honest, competent, and cost-effective government. We have chosen to vote with our feet and our wallets. My best to all of you, and good luck. It's happening, folks. It's happening. This is a guy with deep roots in the state, a guy that tried to fix the system for a very long time. Some of you keep telling me I think we should stay and fight. If you want to, God bless you. But this guy fought. This guy fought for 60 years. He said the hell with it. He went off to literally greener pastures. I'll tell you what. That's what walking to freedom is all about. I want not one or two of these letters. I want thousands and thousands and thousands of these letters. I want states like Illinois, California, uh, Massachusetts, and New York to feel the pain as their best and brightest and most productive citizens say, I've had enough. I'm out of here. I am leaving this freaking place then i want it done in a way where we don't have the objection but they come here and mess everything up i want people leaving for the right reasons and choosing the places that are already most in sync with what they're looking for that's the foundation of a republic i will have to say to uh, senator keats god bless you good luck and welcome to the great state of texas and if anybody knows how to get a hold of this guy let him know about walking tell him we'd love to have his opinion on our forum And we welcome them to the state of Texas. And remember, walking to freedom is not about Texas. It's about all the states that give better options than the ones that are going to end up making the bottom of the barrel list. And again, I don't know what the final list is going to be, but I already know by looking at the voting where it's at right now, Illinois, California, Massachusetts, uh, New York, you will all be on the list. There's just no doubt that those four, and New Jersey, those five are just solid. Right, And they're doing the dumbest, stupidest things you can see in America. Their population is over 80 million. The combined population of those five states is about 80 million people. Almost a third of the entire population of the United States. That's a lot of really good, high-quality people that are in the wrong place. Not all 80 million of them, but you know what? You end up taking eventually even 1% of those. It makes a statement. It makes a big one. And the states that attract them will be better off for it. The disparity will become even greater. And these states are going to have a choice. They're either going to wise up or burn down. I mean, that, that's what's going to happen. They are economically going to burn down if they continue to oppress their citizens, both financially and in the way of their individual constitutionally protected rights. Again, um, Senator Roger Keats from the state of Illinois. Welcome to Texas. And, uh, again, if anybody knows how to get a hold of that guy, I don't know how hard he would be to get a hold of. He's a state senator, not a federal senator, and retired at that. 
Uh, let them know that I was featured in here. Let them know about Walking to Freedom. And I'd love to hear, uh, hear more about, uh, him arriving here. And you know, I just had, you know, Evil Roy, Gene Piercy, uh, on the show last week. He's leaving Colorado, taking two businesses with him, coming to Texas. I, I, when I put this forum up about a month and a half ago now, people said, ah, it's not, not, there's nothing to it. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Uh, like I said in the opening salvo I fired when I launched that forum, um, there are people in these states that would say this is just the action of one, you know, uh, one redneck in Texas. Don't underestimate rednecks in Texas. We, we kind of have it figured out. We know what we're doing and, uh, we'd like to have the good folks join us here. And I'm sure there's other people in other great states. And that's why walking the freedom is set up the way that it is. Um, Make a case for your state. We're reading very close now to where we'll be setting up a board for every state that's not on the naughty list, an ambassador board, a, a information board, a, uh, a connection board. So a board that, you know, Virginia or I don't know if Virginia will make the naughty list or not, but Georgia will have a list, you know. Uh, North Carolina probably have a, a board, you know, Florida. Uh, and people can go in there and say, hey, I'm considering moving, you know. What, what, what can you tell me and, and help? You know, this is my view. If people are able to make a few friends before they even move and then go visit and meet people and understand that there's already people that are like them there that are willing to give them whatever help they can to help make the transition easier, we can kick this thing into overdrive and we can show it for what it really is. And I bet you, I bet you it won't be long before one of these states starts creating a leaving tax. I guarantee you there's something sort of kind of like it already in New Jersey, but it's not really what it is. It's about property taxes and making sure that you don't bail out and not pay the last bit of property tax you have to do. But there'll be some kind of freaking, you know, expatriate tax to leave New York. They'll tax you to leave uh, or something like that. And it, it might be a reason right now to, you know, set up your bank accounts in another state. I'm just saying, if you're thinking about leaving anyway, you might want to get ahead of the power curve on that one. Because they're going to do it. I guarantee you, when they start seeing the financial suck for what it really is, they're going to do it. This uh, this boom that's coming, guys, this huge financial boom, and it's going to be one, let me tell you something. It's not going to be a rising tide that floats all boats. It's not going to work like that this time around. The states that are attracting the producers are going to get the lion's share when this, when this, this energy boom hits. They really are, and it's going to be where you're going to want to be. You're going to want to be in a place like that when it happens uh, because the end of it is not good. It won't sustain itself forever, um, but the states that get the most out of it and do the most with it and invest the most in their own infrastructure with it will stand the tallest uh, when we actually have the, the, the day of reckoning in the end for all of this financial stupidity with printing money like water and going into debt uh, a debt that will soon be over $20 trillion. We know it's financially unsustainable. We've got probably more time than most people that know there's a problem can understand. Uh, like I said, I think it's five, ten years and maybe more. But um, the other side of it's not good. And you want to be standing proud and tall and in the best situation you can be in when it happens. And I'm telling you, the, the states you don't want to be in are the very ones that are being the most oppressive right now. They're just going to get worse. They're going to get more oppressive and more greedy and more financially irresponsible. They don't learn their lesson. History has shown that time and time again. Uh, let's move on. Uh, next question uh, from Backwoods Engineer, and I answered him by uh, email, uh, and uh, he was, uh, he, you know, I'm sure he was happy with that, but I wanted to answer this for everybody because I do talk about it a lot. A lot. 
Can you help me identify a sicket? And then he says this, I don't even know if I got it spelled right. You're always talking about using what you call a sicket. I'm not sure on spelling, a chop and drop mulch. I want to use arugula and Swiss chard as chop and drop in some bare areas. They both grow better and faster than the weeds here, and I and need a small scythe to do it. Is this what you're calling a sicket? And he has a, um, uh, a link to uh, groworganic.com, which is uh, Peaceful Valley Farms. And there's a bunch of tools. There's a brush sickle, a grass sickle, and then there's a sicket cutting tool. That's the one. It's S-I-K-E-T. And I have that very tool, and I'll put a link in today's show notes about it. I'll tell you what I like about a sicket versus a sickle. It's basically, instead of being a sickle, you got a straight handle and then a, a kind of a right-angle curved blade, uh, like a little mini scythe. A sicket... It only curves a little bit. It's almost like a like a small machete or a small knife or a large knife or a small machete with a partially curved blade. And uh, first time I ever saw one, Jeff Lawton was using it. And I saw this on Peaceful Valley Farms, and I ordered it. And it's bigger than I kind of realized. It's like 18 by 5 by 1.5 of the dimension. I never even read it. It looked like a bit of a smaller tool. I like it, but it's kind of big and heavy for what I was looking for. I actually now have just ordered another product, another sicket, uh, even though they're not calling it a sicket, it's what it is, from the Permaculture Institute in Australia. Uh, the one I ordered is a whole bunch of them, but it's the uh, premium small serrated sickle. They call it a sickle, but it's a sicket. It's, when you look at the shape, you'll see the distinctive difference from a, uh, from a sickle, and uh, it's serrated. And I want to talk a little bit about serrated knives and tools in general today. And the bad rap that they get in Amer the American consumer's mind. The American consumer has been sold on the fact that serrated tools are difficult to sharpen and therefore, you know, inferior in every way, shape, or form. And this is absolutely not true. Um, I have one of those knives. I can't remember who makes it. Like Ronco, I think, makes it that you see on TV where they cut beer cans and all, like a Ginsu knife, sort of, but a different particular one. We've had it now for about six years, and it really will still slice a tomato. Uh, very, very thin and very, very well. It's, it's so old and it's not really well, well made as well as they, you know, you've seen the commercials where they try to, so the handle actually is beginning to get a little bit of motion on it and I'll probably buy another one. I'll probably buy another whole set of them because they're cheaper by the set than by the knife. That's how they sell them to you. And, uh, it works great. It, it's a great knife, um, as a low end knife, but it still cuts because the serrations, uh, protect the edge and do the cutting. And that doesn't mean that a serrated knife will do everything that a, that a clean edge, edge knife will do. I wouldn't want to try to skin an animal with a serrated knife. I wouldn't really want to slice meat um, with a serrated knife. I mean, raw meat that you're butchering. Uh, I, have, I want to use a straight edge for that. But there are things that serrations are actually really, really good for. In a sicket or a sickle, uh, I think that they would be outstanding. And I'll tell you a couple reasons why. Number one, when you're working with a small hand sickle, usually what you're doing is you're reaching down and grabbing the material, and then you're cutting it, okay? Which means if you don't have serrations, the way you're going to primarily cut is with a chopping motion, which gives you an opportunity to cut the tip of your finger off. Most of us are smart enough not to do that, but it is a risk. It is a safety risk. And, yes, if it's really perfectly sharpened, you can kind of move it around and cut with it, but it doesn't really work well that way. It's designed to be a chop, 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 slice, slice, slice type of cut. That's what they're for. That's how they're used. 
if you have serrations, then it cuts a little bit differently. So you can grab the material, rest the sicket against the material, and kind of do a drawing, turning, slicing motion through the material. This is actually why serrated tools just like this were used for centuries to harvest anything with a grain head. Here's why. You have wheat that's ready to be cut or barley that's ready to be cut. You're going out there and you're cutting the heads by hand. That's what they would do. They cut the heads by hand and then they would go through and scythe the chaff, the stalks for straw or hay. Okay, But the grain heads you would go out and, and, and put in sheaths with a hand cutting. And the reason you wanted to use a tool that sliced with serrations is it didn't whack and hit the plant and you didn't lose as much grain. That, that, was, that was why they were used so heavily for that type of harvesting. Even with weed cutting and chop and drop and all, I, I'm really uh, impressed with the concept of using a serrated sickle. Now, why am I ordering one from the Permaculture Research Institute of Australia instead of getting one from a good quality American manufacturer right here at home? Nobody freaking makes one that I can find. You find me one, I'll test it out, and maybe I'll buy it. I think there's another business opportunity here. I think that if somebody would really look into making a really good garden sickle, and this can't be an expensive tool, but I think there's an op and there's plenty of garden catalogs and resellers and places out that to build a distribution channel, this is another product waiting to happen. It's a simple tool to build. It's not complicated. And the serrations are going to be the selling point of the person that markets it properly. But again, it is called a sicket. Uh, the overall shape and form traditionally is known as a sicket. It's, again, a straight edge with a half curve versus a, a right angle with a, a slight curve. And uh, S-I-K-E-T, if you want to look for other versions, I'll put a link to both the one I've ordered on the, from the Permaculture Institute and the one from GrowOrganic.com. Again, I'm not in love with the one from GrowOrganic.com. I'm going to work on it. It doesn't come really, really sharp either, though. I'm going to work on sharpening it up a bit uh, lately. Also, I wanted to let you guys know, at the uh, Self-Reliance Expo, I spent almost all my time talking to people and didn't really get to look at a lot of things there. But I did go ahead and pick up a scythe, and uh, I'll probably do a video uh, maybe next week uh, when my voice is better and all of uh, some scything and taking care of scythe and pe how to peen them out and all and uh, how to keep them sharp. Uh, it's a it's a really great tool to have, and it, it, it's going to give us some things we can do uh, that regular mowing wouldn't with giving us some material to use for harrowing seed, and harrowing seed means covering seed. Uh, again, I'll, I'll, I'll show you more about that in the future. Uh, this tool on Grow Organic is a good tool, but I think it's a bit more of a heavier uh, material tool. It's not really something you want to use so much. A, a tool that does a very good job at this uh, is called a corn knife that are available at Tractor Supply. And uh, I had one of those. I think I, I don't know what happened to it during the move, but uh, I may pick another one of those up as well. It works really good for this type of work too, but it doesn't have the serrations. It's more of, again, of a chopping tool. And I did find it on their website just now, the corn knife that I'm talking about. It's shaped almost exactly like a sicket. It's pretty much a sicket being called a corn knife. If you look at that tool, if that tool were serrated, I think it would be the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Uh, but it's a bit big even. I think a sicket needs to be kind of a, maybe you need two sizes, a small and a large. That's what the Research Institute has. Anyway, when I get the one from the Research Institute, 
I will, uh, I'll let you guys, I'll do a video of it, show you guys how it works and let you know what I think of it. And I'll show you the one, what I'll do is I'll wait till I get it and I'll do that and the one from Tractor, not Tractor Supply, the one from, uh, the one from Peaceful Valley Farms at the same time. And maybe I'll get another one. These corn knives are like 10 bucks. So maybe next time I'm in Tractor Supply, I'll pick one up and do the three of them side by side. You know, what advantages and disadvantages you them to have. Uh, but what I like about a small sicket is it's something you can put on your belt, you can carry everywhere, and it does an awful lot of utility work, so it's always with you when you're out doing your homesteading stuff. Uh, like taking your walk to take the chick, you know, the chickens out. Uh, there may be some weeds and stuff you want to kind of pick up along the way. That'd just be one example thereof. Uh, let's take another one. Here's an interesting question that I, I've never seen before, but um, it, it was something that I researched because I picked out all these little cool citrus trees that were very hardy that I thought would be a good idea to maybe give a shot here in Texas that were in this catalog one time. And I was about to order them, and then it said, we do not ship to Texas, California, Hawaii, and Arizona, I think. Uh, these, you know, the, these trees, these citrus trees, I can't, we can't ship there. So it says, uh, I have a question. Hope it makes it on air. Why are some breeds of plant restricted for shipping to an area? Searching for trees for a mini orchard on my place, I found the desirable fruits, particularly citrus, are restricted from being shipped to where I live north of Houston. I was wondering if this is due to Department of Ag restrictions, lobbying efforts by citrus growers, or some other factor. This is one of those things where the, uh, the restriction actually has a purpose. It's, it is a, It is, at least in Texas anyway, I can only speak for my state because I looked it up, but I would assume that it's pretty similar in other states. Here's the deal on citrus. Citrus can be affected by a number of viral diseases, many of which can be transmitted during the budding phase. So it, the tree doesn't even have to come in contact with the other trees. During the budding phase, when it's budding out, um, it can, through pollination and wind, can be transferred to other citrus uh, trees. It's no uh, shock then that there's states like Florida and Texas and California and Arizona that actually have citrus industries that have these restrictions. Many of the old line types of citrus have um, different viruses, and a number of citrus trees in urban areas, especially southeast Texas, have been illegally imported from other states, and they've done some testing over several years and identified significant uh, incidents of these viruses. And because of the threat of accidental induction of citrus viruses and other diseases and pests from uh, other citrus-producing areas, the Texas citrus industry and the Department of Agriculture of Texas and A the Texas A&M University system uh, initiated testing and retesting uh, of foundation trees to assure uh, freedom from disease and to evaluate the characteristics of foundation trees and to uh, make sure that they were true to type and to develop and maintain increased uh, blocks uh, for the protection and sale of certified trees for the state of Texas. So you can get citrus trees in Texas, and it's, it's not hard to do, but they have to be imported through somebody who is certified to do that and knows the stock that they're importing, and, and that stock has to be a known factor when it comes into the state. So a company like Rain Tree Nursery that's shipping out of Washington, that's shipping mandarins or something, um, just can't ship to an individual. I mean, that's just all that it comes down to. Ironically, many of the products that they're shipping probably came to them from Texas or California or Florida, right? So because they're not growing a lot of citrus in Washington State. Uh, and then you wonder, well, why don't these restrictions exist in, in states like, oh, I don't know, North Carolina or Pennsylvania? Well, 
they don't have a citrus industry, so they don't have a crop to protect. So if you want to bring a citrus tree in, uh, there's just not that much of a danger of spread. Uh, so that's, that's what's going on there. I almost think that it's overreaching in this state, though, because the, you know, having these types of citrus in Dallas are no threat to Houston whatsoever. But I understand once it's within the state, it's in the state and, you know, you have no control over where it goes from there. So that's, that's the reasoning behind that. So there are certain things that are restricted that it's not the government or a lobby that's trying to do something nefarious. In this case, there's definitely a lobby involved. The, the citrus growers of these states definitely collectively, you know, got together and got some political will and, and got this stuff done and used money to do it, which is how you get things done in politics in America. But in this case, it's a legitimate concern and a legitimate threat because some of these viruses, there's like one called Exocortis. Uh, could wipe out the entire, so you have a citrus, uh, operation. It could wipe you out for a year or wipe you out permanently. Uh, you might have to end up replanting completely. So this is a legitimate concern and that's why, um, they have that. There's a, uh, there's a link that I'll put up that kind of goes into the entire history, at least for the state of Texas. And I, I imagine that if you, um, Take a look at the other states where these restrictions exist. It's a pretty similar reasoning behind why they're restricted. So now you know. As many of you know, recently uh, President Barack Obama had one of his first real failures to get something done he wanted done. I mean, I don't like the guy at all. I've not really liked the president for a very long time. I'm thinking maybe Andrew Jackson's the last one of those guys I really had an affinity for. Uh, but uh, but one thing I have to admit about President Obama uh, he was able to get a lot of things done that were difficult to get done. Uh, I think they were bad. I don't think they should have happened. I'm not, I'm not, you know, this is not the Obama cheering crowd here. In fact, it's quite the, the reverse. I, I was saddened to see these things get done. I wasn't so surprised at some of the things he got done during the first couple of years in office, but even with the Republican takeover, I mean, he still got things done that you're just like, I, you know, what is this guy got, you know, magic beans in his pocket or what? Uh, but in the gun control push, he couldn't even get it out of the Senate. And it was probably a fail anyway. Um, it probably would have never even seen the light of day in the House, but it just went, we don't, there wasn't enough votes to even get it considered in the House. Um, so, but I still felt good. I felt very good when the press conference came out and all the whiny crap was going on and, uh, and you see him and he just looks so sad. And I was like, that's, that's great. I like seeing him sad. Um, so there's this article here, uh, on Politico, gun control, President Obama's biggest loss. And I'm not even going to read the whole article to you. I, I just want to read one paragraph out of this entire article. And it doesn't really have anything to do with gun control. It's just the mindset of Washington insiders and lobbyists. And this is why, unless we completely gut the system out, there's no hope. And you can say, well, there was hope here. We won. They lost. Whatever. Yeah, I want you to listen to this. The gun control group central to Obama's push never lost faith. The gun control group central to Obama's push never lost faith in the White House and praised its efforts, even as it was clear the push would fail. Quote, bribery isn't what it once was, end quote, said an official with one of the major gun control groups. Quote, the government has no money. Once upon a time, you would throw somebody a post office or a research facility in times like this. Frankly, there is not a lot of leverage, end quote. I'm going to read it again. 
I want that to sink right into every head that thinks that there's any integrity left in the system running our nation. Because basically what he's saying is the reason it didn't work is not enough money to do it. Because of the sequester, even though we're spending over $3 trillion a year, there's not enough earmark money for this to work. Bribery isn't what it once was, said an official with the major gun control groups. The government has no money. Once upon a time, you would throw somebody a post office or a research facility in times like this. Frankly, there's not a lot of leverage. I'll put the whole article up if you want to read it. But that's the country you're living in, where a lobbyist is basically saying, wham, I don't have enough money left to get things done anymore. Right? I mean, can you really? This is this is what the guy says. You know what? If we just had... A little bit more money left in the earmarks. We could have gotten one or two more senators on board and gotten this thing done by throwing them a post office or a research facility. Maybe this tool needs to look at how the post office is doing uh, before we start building another one. But this isn't gone. This isn't going away. They'll come back with another crack at it. But I have to tell you, I was surprised. I thought they would get the background checks done, the universal background checks, as they're calling them, to close the gun control loophole and all that crap. I'm not saying I wanted it done. I'm saying I believe, because it's amazing to me that I'll say something like that. I can't, and you hear the keys going when you read the article. I can't believe that you would support that. I thought you were a libertarian. Saying I thought somebody would get something passed and saying I want them to do so are two different things. For those of you that send me emails like that, please use your God-given brain. Um, but I did think they would get that passed. And there is a tremendous amount of popular support for it because people don't know what they're saying when they're asked about it. So they run a poll and they go, do you think there should be universal background checks for guns to make sure that criminals don't buy guns? Yes, right? With no understanding there's already background checks on every gun sold through a federal firearms dealer right now that the only place you can buy a gun without a background check is from a private individual selling to another private individual. And, gee, if a criminal is going to buy a gun that way, they're not going to care about a law that says they're not allowed to do it. All right? And the only way that you would ever enforce... Here's the, here's the problem with that. Well, why don't we just do it anyway? Because then there'd be this law. And then, then if we found out you bought it from someone else and you weren't supposed to have it, then you and they would both be in trouble and we can stop all this violence. No, because here's what it would lead to. It would end up leading to gun registration. That would be the only way to make it viable and enforce it. And once they got it passed, they would have said, now we need a way to make sure that it happens. So we need to make sure that, okay, fine, you have a gun. You want to sell it to somebody else. You have to go to an FFL to do so. But how do we know, how do we know that you didn't sell it to somebody else? We need to know that you still have the gun that you bought. That's what it was. It was a backdoor to registration, and they're going to make a run at it again. And it's one of the things I'm really, really concerned about. The two things I think they have the best chance of eventually getting done, especially if this ass clown picks up enough seats to do so, and I, at this point I won't put anything past the stupidity of the average American to, to, to swing this thing back to more control, um, is magazine restrictions and, and the background check issue. And they're both gateways to really, really bad things. The magazine one is dumb. It shouldn't even be discussed. And maybe you should pay attention to what's going on in states like Colorado and New York where they did that. And people just said, that's it. I'm done. I'm out of here. I'm done with this crap. Um, but those are the two that I'm most concerned with uh, eventually getting through because they can be sold to the sheeple. And if anybody's offended that I said I put nothing past the stupidity of the average Air American, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know what? When you look at the way people have allowed this country to go, 
Um, you have to accept the fact that a large number of this country has been so dumbed down and made so ignorant and have become so stupid that they actually believe that people like this on either side are looking out for them. Let me read the, uh, the gun control advocate statement one more time for those of you that are still keeping the faith. Bribery isn't what it once was, said an official with one major gun control group. The government has no money. Once upon a time, you would throw somebody a post office or a research facility in times like this. Frankly, there's not a lot of leverage. Now you'll say, well, those are the bad guys. Those are the guys who want to take our guns away. Do you really think, do you really think that either side doesn't feel the exact same way? Do you really think this isn't just a window into how politics gets done? Do you really think only the gun grabbers gave people a post office? Right? Or a research facility to get things done. Do you really think only Democrats did that? If you do, man, I I'm sorry. You're just not living in the real world. You're living in freaking Disneyland. You really are. This is the mentality we're dealing with. Those of you who did not hear the podcast I did with Patrick, uh, uh, Barron of Defining the Machine, please go to definingthemachine.com and look into that and learn more about the party due system in the House of Representatives. It alone should tell you that anything short of completely and totally removing all career politicians from the House and the Senate will not work and will not change anything. It's anything short of that. And then I'll listen to people next time around once again telling me I'm wasting my vote by voting for a libertarian or a third-party candidate. And I'll just say, you know, that's a matter of perspective. I think for voting for any of these people that live in this mentality in this world, That's what wasting your vote really is. Moving on back to something a little more lighthearted and fun and uh, enjoyable and maybe practical and useful, something that we actually can do something like feed ourselves with. Uh, let's talk a little bit about no-till gardening. This comes from OB. Jack OB from the forums here saying, Thank you for opening my eyes about garden tillers. I've retired mine. I'll be looking for a buyer for it soon. I began listening to TSP around episode 875 or so, and I believe I heard your views on tilling the earth about a million times. While I haven't been gardening all my life, over the past five to six years, my spring routine begins with an oil change in the tiller, a day spent ripping up the clay. My initial plantings were always strong out of the gate, but as the season progressed, it was obvious the growth wasn't going to sustain itself. So after a season of weeding and trying every kind of fertilizer known to mankind, my harvest was meager at best. After listening to your show, I immediately started a compost pile, brown base and greens on top. I've kept it active over the winter. Adding organic kitchen scraps and some ground-up tree trimmings, turning it weekly, and trying to keep the moisture at a damp sponge level. I covered my three raised beds in the fall with leaves about three inches thick and pretty much forgot about the beds over the winter, concentrated on learning about spring preparation. I started my seeds inside in late February and didn't put a lot of thought into them other than keeping the potting soil moist and warm. No special mixes, portions, or additives. Last weekend, it was time to get them in the ground. Being in North Georgia, I'm used to digging through hard-packed clay, thanks for nothing, tiller, to get to the softer clay beneath. This year, after raking back the leaf cover, I found what people in the other parts of the country would call soil. Not too deep, but it was brown. When I dug out the first trowel full of soy, the clay was there, but not as red and hard as I'm used to. I also saw the odd worm here and there. The giddiness over, almost overtook me. In two of three beds I've planted so far, I found the same. I got the plants in the ground and loaded up the wheelbarrow with compost to lay around the plantings. Each trowel I pulled had at least three wigglers in it, and it smelled great. I composted everything and emptied my truck bed of hardwood chips. 
like tomatoes, jalapenos, and eggplants should be ready to go into the last bed this weekend. I anticipate the same back results when I pull back the leaves. A little long-winded, but I'm really excited about my prospects this year, and I wanted to say thanks for the advice. Thanks again, OB. Not like OB1, but OB. So OB, cool, man. I think that's awesome, and I think that's, that's what awaits anybody that gives it a shot. Just mulch the hell out of everything, folks. You know, and, and I think that you'll see that, that, that tilling's a waste of time. And I love how the people that defend tilling tell me, but every year when I go to till, there's all these weeds. And so tilling gets rid of weeds? Yes. To, so do you till at all during the year? I have to till in between the rows and pull weeds out. But if I didn't till, wait a minute. So tilling is your solution to weeds, right? Yeah. And then you get more weeds every year. Yeah. Okay. And you, in the spring, the whole thing's loaded and choked with weeds when you till it, right? Uh-huh. And tilling helps you with weeds how? Well, it gets them out of the way for how long? That's the key. Um, what, you, what you see here in Obi's results are what always happens if we start mimicking nature. Who tills the floor of the forest? Who tills the floor of the forest? Go pull the leaves back and look at forest soil and tell me if that's the kind of thing that you'd like to be growing your food in or if you'd like it to be the thing that's there right now mulching works leaves wood chips straw hay i don't care what mulch mulch deep mulch often and keep mulching uh, when you want to add compost pull the mulch back add the compost put the mulch back where it came from and uh, i had a question this week about the wood mulch that i use and you know seeds getting through it and all and i said what i always did you, know, you pull the mulch back get the seeds up get the plants in and push it back around but i, I did admit that i would actually much rather be using straw i would rather have wood on the paths between the beds and straw on the beds themselves. The key is for me to be able to find a straw that I know isn't laced with, with you know, some herbicide. And I'm looking for a source. And I wouldn't say every bed I would rather have straw on. But beds that are, you know, growing certain plants from seeds specifically, uh, straw is a much better mulch for the growing surface itself. Uh, and and it, it really does a great job. But um, Amelia Penethade, uh, leaching into your beds is not a good thing make. So that's why I've kind of compromised and used wood everywhere instead of just in the pathways, at least for now. Finish up with, I've talked quite a bit in the past about, uh, the teacup generation, right? Uh, kids that, that, that grow up and they're just not tough or resilient anymore. Uh, we've talked about everything from them needing to have meat that's not on bones. Good God, I didn't, I mean, I, I thought that was just a weird quirky thing with a few people and I found out like there's an entire generation that have been so sheltered from bones that they're, they're grossed out by or can't be bothered with food that's on a bone. I, I ugh. And all, you know, we had the, 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 the bridge they wanted to build in North Texas across a, a four inch deep, four foot wide ditch and they wanted to spend a million dollars on it to comply with the homeowner's restrictions and the parents were scared and you watched little four or five year old girl just with one hop jump across the damn thing and wonder what the hell's wrong with people and and now we have another uh, example of uh, our teacups uh, and having to make a change to in this case at least probably do something to fix them how about the United States Army? Of course, this, this isn't being reported in, in, you know, America's news system. This is on the Telegraph out of the UK. They're the only ones that will tell the truth, I guess, about our uh, overweight video game playing kids. 
U.S. Army overhauls fitness training for a, quote, weak generation, end quote. It's a headline, folks. I didn't make it up. The United States Army has had to overhaul its basic fitness training for the first time in 30 years in an effort to knock into shape a more sedentary and docile generation of recruits. Muscle building and zigzag sprinting have replaced five have replaced five-mile runs and bayonet charges for new soldiers who've often spent more and more time sitting in front of computers than doing physical exercise. The new training regime also reflects advice from drill sergeants who have several served in Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts about what is relevant to the sort of battlegrounds where U.S. troops are now fighting. The new program also includes greater emphasis on combat experience, including basic hand-to-hand techniques. Trainers note that many recruits have not done physical education in school. Hold on. Trainers note that many recruits have not done physical education in school. Really? Have we fallen that far? Can you get through high school now without PE? Real? I mean, that was a required course when I was in. It was part. If you didn't have enough PE courses, you didn't graduate. Just like if you didn't have enough math courses. I, I, I don't know. My son's been out of school for quite a few years. Tell me if there's no PE at your kid's high school or a kid you know. I'd like to know that. Anyway, and their only experience of fighting has often been in video games. Quote. Most of these soldiers have never been in a fist fight or any kind of physical confrontation. They are stunned when they get smacked in the face, said Captain Scott Sewell, a training officer at the Army's Physical Fitness School at Fort Jackson in South Carolina. Quote, we are trying to get them to act, to think like warriors. I know some of you think the big mean captain shouldn't be slapping people in the face. And let me tell you something. He's not actually doing that. What he's talking about is when they do hand-to-hand training, And, and you know, you're in there and you're sparring with somebody and it's like, and the guy's like, hey, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be hitting, right? Okay, this is not freaking, you know, hopscotch, okay? These are guys being sent to war. Training needs to be rough and tough, right? And what he's saying is when it happens, when they're, they're hit with adversity, they can't handle it. They don't know what to do. Much of the new program in the 10-week basic training, it was eight when I was in, so they've added two weeks, probably, because they need two weeks to get the kids in shape enough to go into the eight weeks at this point, it would be my guess, uh, resembles a sort of calisthenics featured in ab blaster classes in civilian gyms. With the same emphasis on building up body strength, power, and speed in flabby, underused bodies that have relied too much on diets heavy on sugary drinks and fast food. Quote, we geared all of our calisthenics, all of our running movements, all of our warrior skills so soldiers can become stronger, more powerful, and more speed-driven, said Frank Paluska, head of the fitness school. Quote, soldiers need to be able to move quickly under load, to be mobile under load, your body, with your body armor, your weapons, and your helmet in a stressful situation. Stressful situation is code for people trying to shoot your ass. Okay? This is, again, those that are like, this is too harsh. This is the freaking army. Okay, this isn't the Girl Scouts, this is the freaking army. Any training exercises not seen as strictly relevant have been dropped. American soldiers have not carried bayonets on their rifles for years, so the longstanding tradition was among the casualties. The army last overhauled its fitness program in 1980 when men and women soldiers started to train together. Quote, we have to make training relevant to the conditions of the modern battlefield, said Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, the officer in charge of reviewing all aspects of basic training. Let me say something on that last one with the bayonets. I think it's a tremendous mistake to remove bayonet training. Yeah, I know that the ar- the army of today is not going to have soldiers fix bayonets in charge. I understand that. I know that most soldiers don't carry bayonets today. I know that when I was in, we had bayonets, but we never really did anything with them. Some people, when we went to the field, would draw a bayonet, or some of us owned our own bayonets, and we had them because they were a multi-function tool. They were a knife, not just a bayonet. 
Let me tell you why I, I think the Army's on the right track with revamping this stuff to get these out-of-shape kids into shape. But let me tell you something about bayonet training. Bayonet training convinces you I might have to kill somebody in this job. Bayonet training puts you in touch with a certain amount of bloodlust. Oh, we don't want that. We do in people that are going to be shot at and asked to kill other people in return. Okay? But I'll tell you the big thing about bayonet training. There is nothing that I did in the military that really took it out of me the way the bayonet course did. I'm, I went to jungle operations training in, uh, in, in Panama. We went on a course. The end of that course was, you know, this, it was an incredibly difficult course. And we had to drag a guy playing a wounded casualty with us. And I mean, over walls, through marshes. I mean, I would, when that one was over, I was spent. And maybe it's just because I did what they asked us to do on the bayonet course. I gave it everything I had as hard as I could, as fast as I could, right up till the end with the parries and the thrusts and the butt strokes and everything that went along with it. And when I, I remember when I, and I was driving my ass as I came across the, the, the finish line with it. And, you know, usually when you hit the ground or something, when you finish something, they scream and yell at you. They just say, like, when I got to the end of that and I hit the ground, the drill sergeant said nothing. And I, and, and there was plenty of people, you know, kind of on the ground. And once you were there and you got a couple seconds to catch your breath, and I'd go, get up, get up, recruit, get up, you know? Um, and, and, and that was fine. Um, But, uh, but they gave you a little bit of time because you'd done what they asked and they knew it would do it to you. And I, I think it, when you're trying to put people in a shape that aren't in shape to take away something that's that physically demanding is a mistake. And I'll also tell you that the skills, um, they, they carry over, right? So when you're in, um, a close combat situation, it's very possible that you end up with somebody trying to grab the, the, the muzzle of your weapon. Or you end up attacked where you can't get down fast enough. And the parries, the thrusts, the butt strokes, all the using the rifle itself as a weapon, uh, I think are very valuable skills. True that when you do teamwork the right way and you have people covering each other and all that, these things shouldn't happen, that you shouldn't end up in that situation. Or if you are, you should be covered by somebody else that can take out the threat for you while you're dealing with it. But... You know, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy. And I think that that's a huge mistake that our military's made. Taking away the bayonet training when you're telling me that the people coming in are not in the physical condition that they need to be just to be in basic, that's, that's a problem for me. I don't know what they do now. When I was in basic training, the first day, uh, not of training, of, of processing, you had to take a physical fitness test. Um, and it was a certain amount of push-ups, a certain amount of sit-ups, And we had to run, and I don't, I don't think it was a two-mile run. I think it was like a half-mile run, and there was a certain time. And if you didn't pass that test, basically, you're fit enough to begin training. You went to, like, this other place, and it was, like, two weeks. And you might be there for four weeks. You might be there for six weeks. But you didn't come out of there and go to a training unit until you were capable of going through training. And very few people ended up having, I would say, you know, you come in, you're in a huge group when you come in. There's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people processed uh, in a given cycle. And uh, I, I think I remember two or three uh, males uh, getting pushed into that and, and maybe a half a dozen females out of that whole massive group, probably a thousand soldiers, you know, new, new recruits. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a very 
unusual thing. And it was kind of like, you know, most of us felt like the, the level they required of us was kind of a joke. Uh, and we didn't think it was a joke. Then, you know, the first actual day of, 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 of training, when you actually did Army PT the real way for the first time, it wasn't a joke anymore. Uh, and I, actually, it, it kind of, when I, when I had that first actual real day of PT, I felt, you know what, even then that the, the, the qualifier that you did when you first got there wasn't strong, wasn't enough. You know, it should have been a little bit tighter because I was able to get through it no problem, but it did tax me quite a bit. And I was thinking just because you could do what they asked uh, you to do a few days ago doesn't mean you could do this. And uh, so even there, I think there was a little bit of a weakness. But I, I, I don't understand because this is what happened with me. I joined the Army uh, in my senior year of high school. I was still in school when I joined. And then I, I was home for the most of the summer, and then I went off in the fall to my training. And from the day I signed up, I was hitting the bench more than I ever had. And I had played football, you know. I was I was running. I was, you know, running cross-country running, basically. We had trails that were through the woods by the, the high school near where I lived. And I was running up there, and I was running probably a mile and a half to three miles at a time, two to three days a week, in addition to the weight training and everything else. I was... I went to basic in shape, and I would tell you that most of the people that I was there with had made some effort. Uh, I knew the minimum qualifications for the physical fitness test, what you had to do to pass the test, um, which many people that showed up weren't able to do. I came in able to pass the fitness test, the running, the sit-ups, and the push-ups. Um, I learned that some of the, the the technique was a little bit more stringent than I had put myself through, but I could have passed the PT test on day one. Um, and I was still in a hell of a lot better shape at the end of basic than I was when I went in. It bothers me. It bothers me that they have to, in some ways it sounds like they're making it easier. Uh, and maybe it, what they should be doing is making at least it by the end of it, it maybe it should be a little bit harder. Um And it's just another example of how we're weakening our next generation. Uh, I can tell you that's not good for us, guys. And I know that some of you aren't real hip on the Army blowing stuff up anyway. And, and I'm not either. I'm not either. But any nation needs, needs a military force for defense. Now, we can talk about how sometimes our forces are used in ways we prefer they not be used. But we need that force. And if that force is never deployed to combat ever, it still has to be capable of being deployed to combat. It has to be capable of acting when it's called on. And uh, I don't mean, for some of you guys that are in right now, I don't mean to put you guys down. This isn't about the Army. Uh, and this isn't about our soldiers that serve. This is about the quality of some of our, of our youth that are, you know, in, in all fairness, stepping up and saying, I'll go do this. But uh, they're not physically capable anymore and uh, frankly an 18 year old male or female should be in the best shape uh, uh you know of their life at 18 they, i mean that that's that's the premium that's where you've 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 kind of fully developed maybe not 100% fully developed because there's definitely some muscular structure and things especially in men uh that continue to develop you know 18 to 21 that there's some of that in there but 18 year old kids should be in great shape not soft not weak And when they get smacked in the face, which again is not, for those of you that have never served, it's not the captain walking up and literally slapping the guy in the face. It's things that happen in training that are, a, in some cases, actually physical contact in a sparring match. You know, you're wrestling with, you, you have to simulate combat. 
And the guy you're wrestling with basically shoves your face with his palm of his hand. And these, some of these people can't handle it, right? The, these, these are not things that 18 year old young men should be dealing with when they go to the military. And you also, this is the bigger issue. It's not so much the military. It's not even so much these kids. It's really not. This is my point. The kids that are doing this are the ones with a predisposition to be willing to accept a tough challenge. Because you don't join the army and don't think it's going to be a challenge. You just don't. That are willing to put themselves in harm way. That, that are willing to serve. That are willing to sign away part of their life. Because trust me, when you join, you sign away you, your part of your life. In other words, the people that have this problem are the people that are the ones that should be the least likely to have it. And they probably have the smallest version of it. What does that say about the other 98% of our youth that aren't joining the military? How much softer are they than these recruits we've had to alter the system for because they're soft and they're not equipped to deal with the old style of training? And I'll tell you what, I have no influence over the United States Army, and I probably shouldn't, but if I did, one thing I would tell this general, bring back the bayonet. Bring back the code of the bayonet. I'll give you the code, and some of you really won't like it. To kill, to kill with ice-cold steel. And when you're going through that training, they have you shout that until you believe it. And they'll ask you, what makes the grass grow? The answer is blood. Blood and guts make the grass grow. I know that's awful graphic. I know that's something that many of you would go, I don't really want. The, but that's fine. Then don't join the army, okay? If you want to serve and you don't want blood and guts to make the grass grow, join the Air Force. Join the Navy. And I'm not putting down the Air Force Pararescue. I'm not putting down the Navy SEALs. You guys know that. And there's a lot of badasses in all branches of service. But when it comes down to it, if you're going to be a Marine or you're going to be a soldier, dealing with death is part of the, part of the, part of the gig, especially if you're an infantryman or in combat support of some type. Even if you're not an infantryman, even if you're not in direct combat, if you're in direct combat support MOSs, this is all real. And I'm not saying it doesn't happen to people in the Navy or the Air Force either. Everybody's a target today in some of these places. But you're going to actively go out into these scenarios if you're in the Army or the Marine Corps. Absolutely, 100%. Even people that are just clerks are going to go into that role at some point, at least possibly. And they need to be prepared for it. And that level of training, that level of intensity, and I want to hear from some of you guys that remember the bayonet course. I know i got a lot of military guys here, guys that served before me or about the time I did or shortly thereafter when that was still part of it. Do you remember what it was like? And I mean the physical demand of running the course if you really did what you were asked to do and gave it 100% and you gave it your all. If you put everything into it, do you remember how it tested you, and did it change you? I know it changed me. It didn't make me into a bloodthirsty killer, but it did connect me, and it was the biggest thing that connected me when I was in the military because I was a great shot. I still am a pretty good shot. And I was a great shot then. I had better eyes, and I qualified expert with no problem. But knocking down targets, even though they were shaped like human beings, didn't really prepare me for the concept that I might have to be someone that killed. The bayonet did it. The bayonet tested me and changed me 
But yet I kept my humanity on the other side. I hope I've done a good job of demonstrating on that in the show, the show over the years. But I think it's something we need in our soldiers. And I, those of you that have served in the Marine Corps or actively serving, I'd like to know, is bayonets training still part of what you guys do? Um, at least in, and I know it's not a combat technique. That's not what it, I'm talking about here. There's a lot of things. You know what? Push-ups. You don't do a lot of push-ups in combat. Okay? You really don't. You don't climb a lot of ropes in combat. Sometimes there's a specific application for it, but it's not general, you know, there's a lot of things. You don't do a lot of sit-ups in combat. There's a lot of things we do in training to, to condition ourselves mentally and physically that are not the exact actions that we take in a combat or a tactical situation, and they still have value. That's how I viewed the bayonet. I'd like to hear from those of you who've had experience with that. And those of you that um, that are serving right now that maybe have just recently gone through training, you know, does this add up? And then one thing I want to add before I, I, I finish here, that this is talking about Fort Jackson. Now, Fort Jackson is all support MOSs. It's not infantry, unless that's changed. So those of you that have maybe been through Benning, uh, or, or, or maybe I think Fort Knox, I think this does a lot of infantry training still. Any place like that where they're, you know, you're going for one station, unit training, if they still call it that, you're in as a, as an infantry, uh, soldier you know is it maybe not quite the same there or is it like this i'd like to know but again folks i know that sometimes when i talk about this teacup stuff you guys don't think it's important it's really important we need to strengthen the resolve the resiliency and the fitness in our children because they are the future they really are they're going to be the ones in charge and uh we've got some tough times ahead and we need some tough people to deal with them with that this has been another episode of the survival podcast Uh, with Jack Spirico helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, we follow our There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd you don't have to live the way they tell you to
revolution is you.